Genesis chapter 3 is where we are. Uh, you'll remember that for the last couple of studies here in the first opening verses of Genesis, we've been talking about sin, original sin. And we've learned some things I want to kind of get us up to speed really quick. Number one, sin did not come from God. In other words, God is not responsible for sin. His creatures are. His creatures are. Sin originated in Satan when he, by his own choice, rebelled against God, was kicked out of heaven, and then originated in his creation, Adam and Eve, when they deliberately disobeyed, willfully deliberately disobeyed God. So God is not responsible for sin. The source of sin is outside God. God cannot possess sin. He can't be around sin. He's only truth. He's only love. He's only good. And we studied that. You can go back and listen to those CDs to get more information. But sin came into the world when Adam and Eve deliberately disobeyed God. And if you look with me really quick at chapter 1, verse 31, and just a page for you, or maybe you won't turn a page, but look at creation in all of God's glory summed up here in verse 31 of chapter 1 of Genesis. Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed, it was very good. That includes man. Everything that God had made in the six days of creation, at the last, at the end of the sixth day, he makes man in his own image, in his own likeness. And then in verse 31 of chapter 1, he says, everything is perfect. Everything is complete. In other words, there is no sin in the world. That's, that's what that means there. Everything that God had made was perfect and complete. And so Adam and Eve lived, if you can imagine, it's very hard, but they lived in a perfect environment. No sin. They were in an absolutely perfect environment. Think about that. No corruption, no decay, no uh, kind of, of breakdown at all, no sin whatsoever. A perfect sinless world with a perfect sinless man, Adam, at the end of verse 31 of chapter 1. It's in Genesis 3 that we get the origin of sin. And everything in Genesis 3 goes from good to very bad, that fast. It all happens very, very quickly. Paul in Romans 5, I'm going to refer to this verse several times. Notice on the screen. Therefore, just as through one man, Paul says, sin entered the world through a man, not through God, came through Adam, and death through sin, and thus death spread to who? And are you all tonight, are you all? That's you and I. That's where sin came from. But the Bible teaches. This is the Bible worldview. This is what, where sin originates from. This is what the Bible's teaching us, that sin did not come from God, but it came through man. Adam and Eve deliberately sinned, and then we all have inherited that sinful nature known by theologians as original sin. We all possess Adamic sin, Adamic nature, original sin. There are different phrases you could use, but we all went down, all of us, because we've all come from Adam and Eve. They're our parents. They're really our parents. We all descended from Adam and Eve. In other words, think about this. Race, different nationalities, there aren't any. We're, we're all the same. Biologically, we are all the same. DNA, but we just, that DNA, when mom and dad come together and you have a little junior, I have five of those little juniors, 
And they all possess a little Esther and a little Lee. And just like your kids, a little of the husband, a little of the wife, that DNA comes together. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? And so this is God's design. This is, but, but as our children inherit our likeness physically, we as humans, as sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, we have all inherited the sin nature. Romans 5.12, therefore just as one man, sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. The Bible teaches that everyone's a sinner. No one's good. You hear that a lot. People say, I'm good. I'm good. I don't need religion. I don't need this. I don't need to do... Well, you know what? The Bible says that all men are sinners and that you need God's remedy for sin, and that's his son. He sent Jesus Christ. You in this church all understand that. But Romans, Romans 5, 12 really is a kind of a quick, concise commentary on how sin entered the world, and we all inherited sin. Now, when you compare Genesis chapter 1 and 2, Genesis 1 and 2, creation, completion, perfection, with what you see in the world today, what do you see? Genesis 1 and 2, perfect, no corruption, no decay, complete. But today, when we look in our world, what do we see? Death, decay, and the older you get, the older you get, the more you feel it, right, guys? Ladies, gentlemen, the more you feel it, you feel that decay. Um, all of that is a result of sin. It wasn't meant to be that way. You and I were not made to live in this life with all the corruption around us. We were made to live in a perfect utopia, a perfect creation with no decay, no sin. That's what God created us for. But it's sin that drags us down. It's sin that's created all that we endure, death, decay, and, and those things. Death was spiritual, we're going to discover, and physical for Adam and Eve. We've, we've actually, I've already taught some of these things. Again, I'm just kind of going through. That's the Christian worldview. Where did sin come from? What is sin? It comes from Genesis 3. If you don't understand creation, Genesis 1, original sin, Genesis 3, then how can you even read the New Testament and understand it? You, you really can't. This is so foundational for you as believers, and I'm glad you're here on Wednesday nights. I'm glad that I have been given the opportunity to study hard and present to you these truths because I want you to grow. And in this, you're going to be able to defend your faith. You're going to be able to understand when you get to Romans. You'll understand Romans so much better. When you read Romans, you'll get it because you'll understand that we are sinners to the core because we've all inherited Adamic sin. So this is really important, this Christian worldview that humankind has inherited sin from our parents, Adam and Eve. Now, it was after Satan's rebellion in heaven that he, Satan, came into the garden. So he rebelled first by choice. Remember I talked to you about how he was created, how we're created, intelligence. We have uh, the ability to think. We have the ability to reason with all the intelligence we have. And then we have the ability to do what? What do we, can we do? Now we have intelligence and reason. What do we do? Choice. We choose things. We do things. We make decisions. Volition. And, and so Satan obviously was created by God. All the angels were created in a snap at the same time. I don't know when. We're not told. But Satan rebelled against God. He chose to rebel against God. And then he fell, he came into the world. So think about that for just a minute. I, I mentioned this before. We have this perfect world, but you have this Satan wandering around. So, so there was sin there, but it was in Satan. And then Satan beguiles, Satan tempts Eve. And then Eve, Eve does what she knew she shouldn't do by her own choice. 
And that's what brought sin. Everything's been affected by sin. That's where sin came from. Eve sinned by her own choice. Satan had no power over Eve. Satan didn't make Eve sin. Satan doesn't make you sin. Satan tempts you. Satan puts the carrot out in front of you. Uh, uh, the scripture says that we're all tempted by our own lusts and when enticed in James. So we're, we're enticed by it. We wanted, and then we choose to do it. We choose to disobey. So again, that's what the scripture says about sin. Now, Eve, when she was deceived, notice my next point here. She saw, she lusted, she ate it. You remember I told you that before, but verse 6, go to chapter 3, verse 6 really quick. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and the tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit, deliberately chose, she took it, and then she ate. She disobeyed God. She also gave to her husband, and he ate. So the result of sin was immediate. Immediately they felt guilt. Immediately they felt shame. Immediately they had never felt that before. Think about that. They never experienced shame before. They walked with God. They had nothing to be ashamed of. They were naked, remember, and unashamed. They were before the Lord. They had nothing to hide. But then God comes to find Adam in the garden. And what is Adam doing? He's hiding. Why is he hiding? Because he feels shame. He knows he does, did something wrong. Now he has his conscience that's, that's just echoing in his very being that I've done something wrong and he's fearful. My next point, God called out to them, verse 9. Then God called out to Adam and said, where are you? And that's when we get the blame shift real quick. Verse 10, so Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden. God was calling out to Adam, obviously. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you? You should not eat. Then the man, verse 12, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the tree and I ate it. It's not my fault, it's hers. She, it's, it's her. And he's like, it's, it's so interesting when you read this, you know. God, she put the fruit in my hand and, and, and I just kind of ate it. Jumped into my mouth. I mean, think about what he's saying. And then Eve claims she's a victim. My next point, verse 13, and the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? Again, God is going right to them. Adam, what did you do? Eve, what did you do? You know, as a parent, isn't that what you do with your kids? When they did something you told them not to do and they did it anyway. And you go to them and you don't just clean up the mess. A lot of times you'll, say, you'll go to them and you'll say, Philip or... Ashley or whoever it was, Eric, what did you do? And you give them an opportunity, what? To do what? To confess, right? That's what God is doing. He's giving them an opportunity. But she claims she's a victim here. The serpent deceived me and I ate. In other words, I'm a victim. I'm a victim of deceit. I'm a victim of the devil made me do it. She's just blame shifting. It didn't work for Adam. It didn't work for Eve. And it won't work for you and I, will it? We know and serve and a loving God, he loves you and I too much to allow us to remain in our sin. So he took care of the sin problem through sending his son. We'll talk a lot about redemption tonight, but God's remedy for sin. It's Jesus, Romans 5.8, you're familiar with this verse, but God demonstrates his own love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God remedies man's sin, our alienation, our decay, our spiritual 
um, separation from God because of sin. God remedies that, and he demonstrates his great love for us by giving us his only son. It's a marvelous truth in the scriptures, but it's here in Genesis 3 that we begin to see that God is merciful, that God is gracious. He's allowing Adam and Eve to come to him and confess. They don't do it. They blame. They blame. They point the finger at somebody else. But God's giving them that opportunity. This is The truth here is when you read this and you read it again and again, you finally see God is so merciful. God is so loving. He doesn't come, remember my illustration a couple weeks ago, thundering in the garden, thundering. What did you do? I'm after you and chasing him. He didn't do that. He comes walking in the garden in the cool of the evening, the Bible says. He's, he's offering this opportunity for Adam to confess his guilt before him, but Adam chooses to blame shift instead. He could have stricken both of them dead right on the spot, but again, this proves how merciful and thoughtful God is. He had told Adam, if you look real quick, chapter 2, verse 17, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God could have come in the garden, said, Adam, where are you? Boom. He could have done that, right? That would have been a just thing for God to do because he told them what not to do. They deliberately disobeyed. God is God, and he could, he could have justly went, boom, but he didn't. You know what he did? He showed mercy. Aren't you glad God's merciful? How many times has God been merciful to you? Isn't God wonderful? That is what's being expressed here. And you know, technically we can get into all the little theological nits and, and pieces here, but I, I so hope that you see that tonight, that God is merciful and he's gracious and all that God wants to do. God possesses grace. He possesses love, love that has no measure. And he's demonstrating this love. Someone says that, that God's, God is interposed with love. He's filled with love in his grace. And he, he restores us to fellowship. And he, he so desires to take care of the curse. I'm not going to get to the covering tonight. I entitled this The Curse and the Covering. We won't get that far tonight because there's so many good things in here. But God is doing this. He's going to deal with the curse, and he's going to do it mercifully. His goal is to restore, or a better theological word for you to understand, redeem, redemption. Redemption begins right here in Genesis, and it threads its way so beautifully through many, many, many stories in the Old Testament until Jesus comes, and then we see redemption again, and all through the, the epistles, Paul kind of elaborates on the redemption of God, his, his desire to redeem us, to purchase us back, to take us back from the clutches of Satan and sin. That's what the Bible, it's a love story, God's love story for you and me, all about redemption. Now, this section that we're looking at tonight, it begins with the curse of the animal, Satan. Um, and Satan was the animal. Now, remember, this, Satan's an animal in this depiction here. Satan is a created angel, but he takes the form of this animal, or he, he comes into this animal and uh, it's this animal that is the serpent. My next point here, the serpent is cursed. So let's look at this, verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent. Now remember, he's, God's gone to Adam, God's gone to Eve. 
And now he's going to mete out justice. And he goes right to the serpent. Because you have done this, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle, more than every other beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. So first, God cursed the anim- this animal. Now think about an animal real quick. No sense of sin. No conscience. Animal. Think about an animal. They, they really don't have that kind of a, a, a sense of sin. They don't have a mind to choose. An animal doesn't do that. They'll just kind of, if they have to go to the bathroom, they'll do it right in front of you. It's not a problem for them. They don't, they're animals, right? And this animal here, this snake, is just an animal used by Satan to tempt Eve. It's just an animal. So why does the snake get cursed by God? I, I love to ask myself questions while I'm doing my, my inductive Bible study. I'm asking these questions. It's really good for you to do that as you read the scriptures. Cursing the serpent. Listen to this. It's a symbolic move by God. It's a symbolic and forever this snake now symbolizes deceit. And all of us, when we think of that dirty, rotten deceiver, he deceited me. He, he's like a snake in the grass, you know? We, we have that, those little uh, words and sayings that we say. It's not until the end of the Bible, Revelation 12. Look at this verse behind me. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the world, whole world. He was cast down to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. It's the snake or the serpent that becomes this perpetual symbol. So instead of John referring to him as Satan, it's the dragon. It's the the serpent going all the way back to Genesis 3. And that's what is being taught here. The snake or the serpent becomes this perpetual symbol of God's judgment on Satan. Remember before Lucifer's fall, we looked at Isaiah a few weeks ago, so you'll have to remember a little bit. But what was it that Lucifer wanted? Lucifer was the greatest and most beautifully created angel of all. He was the most powerful and beautiful. Uh, Most believe that he was probably the worship leader in heaven. He had authority. He he had this beauty beyond other angels, the other created angels. But remember what he wanted? He wanted all of these things. He said, I will, I will. Let me read it to you, or you can see it on the screen. I, I have this one up, I think, Isaiah 14. For you have said in your heart, this is, this is God pronouncing, uh, the prophet pronouncing judgment on Satan. This is what Satan said. I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars. I will sit on the mount of the congregation on the farthest side of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. The five I wills of Satan. They reveal pride. They reveal his desire to to usurp God, to take over, to move to the top of the pile, to to become and to be of all. That was his choice. That's what he wanted to do. He tried to do it. But instead of lifting himself up, what did God do? Threw him down. God took him down. God's all powerful. God's not going to stand for that. So God threw him out of heaven. He was thrown out, kicked out of heaven. And where did he go? The Bible says he was cast out to the earth. He came here. That's what the scripture teaches. And now he's on earth. And what does he want to do now? He wants to have authority. He wants to 
build himself back up. He's been kicked out of heaven. And so on earth now, what does he want to do? He wants to control everything. That has been Satan's motive from the beginning. He wants to deceive and he wants to control. And he wants, in this case, he got Eve, tempted Eve to, to give him the right to be ruler over her by usurping. He becomes ruler over Adam because he, Adam sins. Adam goes along with the temptation. He falls into that temptation as well. And so the Bible calls him the God of this age. The Bible calls Satan the prince and the power of the air. In other words, why do bad things happen, disasters and all that stuff? Well, sin, right? Genesis 3, the fall of man. But Satan, he's at the bottom of that. Can we please stop blaming God for all those bad things that happen to people? The, the Christian worldview, the Bible, God is only love. God is kindness. The stuff that's happening is a result of sin. It's not God. God can use anything and does use disasters and sicknesses. God uses those things, yes, in our lives. Has he not used it in your life to teach you a lesson, to bring you to a place of surrender, to whatever it might be? I, that's happened in my life as well. But the God of this age, the ruler of this world, is Satan. And he's only been given a little. He's on a leash. He really is on a leash. God has him on a leash. God's in control of him. He can only do so much. He comes up to to God in heaven, uh, gee, God, can I go do this to your servant, you know, and, and, and no, you can't do certain things. And, and then God says, oh, have you considered my servant Job? I have a guy, you want, you want to go after one of, my, one of mine? I'll, I'll let you go after Job. God actually mentions his name and God lets him go after Job. And you go, oh my goodness, how does he, why would he do that? Because God was teaching you and I these wonderful lessons so that when we read Job, we know that God's in control and that God is sovereign and that God can take a man down and bring a man back up. God is teaching through all of these different situations. But it's Satan who's the ruler of the world, the God of this age. So by the time we get to verse 14 here in chapter 3, God's going to throw him down again. And the symbol is this statement, on your belly you shall go and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. That's the symbol. So God sentenced the serpent to slither on the ground instead of walking upright. It was a, it was a dragon, I, I don't know. You know, you see little Google things on dragons. You know, so they, there's a new one out here with a funny white albino looking thing laying on the ground, it looks like a piece of wire. Oh, it's a serpent, you know, people. It's like, we don't know. But we do know that the serpent in Genesis 3 walked up to Eve and, and beguiled her. And then because of the curse, the serpent now is slithering on the ground, crawling and wriggling on its belly. That is a symbol of the curse of Satan. Whenever you see that, think about it. Lucifer, he's once this bright and brilliant angel in control, uh, give, given authority in heaven. But now he's a slithering representation, the symbol of the, the snake just slithering around. Snakes illustrate God's curse on Satan. Very, very interesting. And in addition, there's a natural hatred between mankind and snakes, right? Especially on the part of women. How many are afraid of snakes? Let me see. If I was to bring a snake out here right now, what would you do? Would you leave? You would? Because I was going to bring one out. How many want to see me bring a snake out? Okay. 
don't leave. Don't don't leave. Where is he? You want him out? Yeah, yeah. Let me take him out. Wait, he's gonna go up my shirt. Okay. This this snake, I'll just bring him right here. He was right outside the office door today. At four o'clock, my wife, my daughter, she gave me a little where are you going? She gave me this little text that said, there's a snake, there's a snake. So I came downstairs and right outside the office door, this is a bull snake, it's a harmless, we actually need him in our yard here in, out in the patio so he'll get, take care of the gophers. Okay, here you go. All right, nobody, nobody left. Everybody's okay. Okay, now I didn't, I didn't do that for any other reason but for this object lesson. There's enmity between the woman and the snake, right? Did you feel kind of creepy? I used to catch snakes when I was a little kid up in the local mountains, so they don't bother me as much. But, but the snake is a symbol. This creeping, crawling little thing is a symbol of God's curse on Satan. Some of you are still crawling. You're gonna, we're going to get rid of the snake. He won't be out here. <laughs> okay, here's my next point. Follow me here in verse 15. The doom of Satan. Here it is. The doom of Satan, verse 15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, the snake and the woman. That's that creepy crawly thing you felt every time you see a snake. And between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, here's now God prophesying this judgment on Satan's doom here. And I'm going to elaborate on that in just a moment here. But here's the, the truth. There's a battle. There's a battle, and it's on right now. And there's a battle between Satan and what? Notice what it says. The seed of the woman. The battle is between Satan and the seed of the woman. And God is revealing here that in the future, God is going to ultimately deal with Satan. He's going to take care of Satan. He's going to take him out. But first, Satan would wound the Messiah, bruise his heel. Now, if I put that snake down and it started running around, the first thing it does, the first thing you're going to do when it goes under the pew is what? What are you going to do? You lift your feet up, right? Because he's going to do what? He's going to bite your heel, right? You're afraid of that. That's what this text is telling us. The, the snake is only going to, Satan is only going to bruise the Messiah, just bruise the heel. But look what the Messiah is going to do. Do you see the crush there? That is speaking of, of the ultimate uh, end of Satan, that he is doomed, that God is going to crush him. Now in Romans, Romans 16.20, I think it is, that the God of peace will crush Satan under whose feet? Remember that scripture? The Bible says that God is ultimately going to take care of Satan, that Satan would strike or bruise the heel of Jesus, the, the Messiah, but that God would ultimately take care of, of bruising the head or taking care. That's, a, that's God pronouncing Satan's defeat from, listen, Genesis chapter 3. I don't have to worry about Satan. You don't have to worry about Satan. God's going to take care of Satan. Number one, he's on a leash. He can only go as far as God lets him go. And then secondly, secondly, God has pronounced his doom right here. He's going to bite. He's going to bruise the heel of the Messiah. What, what does that represent? That's Jesus. That's, 
the beating, that's the crown of thorns, that's the, the humiliation of the crucifixion. But then Jesus rose the third day. That's the power of God. That's the resurrection and the newness of life that you and I can have if we put our faith in Jesus Christ. And the fact that ultimately Satan will be cast out. He's going to be thrown out for a thousand years. There's going to be a millennial reign at the end of the seven-year tribulation. That's 1,000 years of peace and prosperity. Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem. It's going to be awesome. Perfect rule and righteous. Nobody can you know, it's Jesus who's your adjudicator. No, you can't hide from his eyes of flaming fire. You, you can't hide anything. So everything's going to be righteous for a thousand years. And then Satan's loose for a real brief time. It's really, if you read the Revelation, it's just like that quick. He takes the few that have rebelled willfully, and all of a sudden, we're taken into this new heaven and new earth in a perfect environment that God has always wanted for us, the, the end of redemption there. But again, we have here, Interestingly, um, the, the snake and its representation symbolically and Satan bruising the heel of the Messiah and then the forehead being crushed by the Messiah. I, I love that. It's perfect. Romans 5.8, God would, again, demonstrate his love. I've shown you this. I love this verse, but God demonstrated his love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, so the Satan's curse. Next, we have the woman cursed. Verse 16, I got to keep moving here. To the woman, he said, verse 16, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now, there's two parts of this curse, and I really hope that you get this. I'm going to go as quickly as I can through this, but there's some really wonderful truth here. I will greatly multiply your sorrow because Eve sinned against God. God goes to her, and he's going to now pronounce this judgment or this curse or her, you know, this judgment on her. Multiply your sorrow and your conception. And there's really two parts of the curse. The first part of the curse deals with the very center of a woman the center of a woman and her desire to have a baby, her desire to, to birth a child, the center of a woman. Multiply your sorrow in conception, in pain, you shall bring forth children. So the first part of the woman's curse is, is her relationship to her ch children. In other words, her children are not going to be raised in a complete perfect utopia without de decay or sin. But now our children are going to be raised in a world that's filled with sin and death and decay and corruption. And all of those things are going to play against the woman and her relationship to her children. It's going to bring sorrow and pain. I, I really hope that you understand this. Both men and women know tremendous sorrow. And you can look at any uh, historical era, and you'll find tremendous amounts of pain for both men and, and women. But this multiplied sorrow here, this multiplied sorrow that's the woman's curse, it's very unique to her. First, there's the, the obvious danger and pain of childbirth, right? I mean, the mortality rate in other cultures is very high. Uh, women die giving birth. Children die being birthed. And so there's, there's a tremendous amount of danger in that birthing 
process here. Again, we're looking at multiple or multiply your sorrow in this relationship to her children. And then there's all the heartache that come from a child. Um, Oftentimes because the child now, well, only because the child now has the same Adamic nature, the same original sin nature that the woman has. And so there you have conflict between mother and child. And that brings pain again to the mother. There's tremendous joy in one moment. And then there's death and lies and sin and disappointment. Again, this is the multiple, multiplied sorrows within the woman. This is the curse. All of these feelings that you, you go through women that are very desperate and very real. I'm not trying to minimize them at all. They're very real. These things are a result of the curse. They're multiplied. That's what the scripture says here. I thought about this briefly. Um, I've been to a couple third world countries. Uh, the women that birth children in third world countries, again, mortality rates much, much higher than here in America. There's not as much medical help. There might not even be a hospital in the, away from the hospital, call it the jungle, the, the you know, in, I was in uh, the Philippines, the, the there's some nice hospitals there, and then there's some hospitals with dirt floors. Um, the mortality rate is, is much higher, is the point I'm trying to make. India, the second most populous country in the world, 1.2 billion people. Most of them are impoverished. Have you ever seen pictures of impoverished women? Their bodies are very thin, the child's malnourished, they're nursing. You, you've seen them. I don't even have to show you one of those pictures. That brings sorrow to a woman. That's what this is talking about. I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Again, those pictures are so true and so real. Not to mention this. In our advanced society, you have a child, and your child now is subjected to all kinds of interesting laws in our country now. I mean, I don't want to mention them because they just become political tonight, and that's all you'll remember, but there's nasty stuff going on in our country right now. And so as a mother, you're worried about that, about your child, the danger that your child faces, and there's sorrow because something might happen. There's abductions, there's sex slaves, children that are, that are taken away. I mean, just in Utah, the... The Mormon religion, and I, I don't mean to offend anybody, but it's very true. Warren Jeffs, look at his, look, he's in jail right now. Why? Because he had sex with underage children that he just took as wives, 14, 13-year-olds. This, this kind of, think about the sorrow multiply. The woman's heart feels, senses this way more than any man in this room. And we always, right now we're thinking, wow, wow, here's what I want you guys to think about. Think about your wife and that God wants you to love her and God wants you to be sensitive around her and help her and assist her through those feelings. I have to be honest with you. I don't do that as much as I should. That's what I'm called to do as a man. I'm supposed to understand that my wife is under this curse and I have to do all I can to, to help assist her with these feelings that she, she gets out of control with. They, they overwhelm her at times. Multiplied sorrows. That's the curse of this woman. You can ask any mother. All the dangers 
physically and spiritually that their children face. Those are all the sorrows of a, a woman there. Now, God never intended a woman to worry and to have those feelings from the beginning. In the garden, you would have never, women, you would have never, it would have just been birth without pain. Think about that. In the garden, perfect. No pain. So you would have, hey, look, I'm getting really big. This is going to be great. Oh, I think the baby's coming. Here it comes. Oh, isn't she beautiful? <laughs> I mean, think about that. That's, that's the conversation that would go on in the garden. But because of sin, I've watched my brave bride bear five 10-pound babies. Every one of them was over 10 pounds, all five of them. And, and I believe that God gave her strength, and, but, but I'll tell you what, I don't think ouch even comes to the pain that she experienced. I mean, I was there, and I didn't feel it. I was hurting, but not like she was. And women go through all of these different kinds of pain, multiplied sorrows. That was the the result, the result of the curse on woman. So what can a mother do? Real quick, let me tell you. First Timothy 2.15, let me show you this verse. Nevertheless, she will be saved in childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness with self-control. This is a verse that I believe that every godly woman should hold on to. The New American Standard renders that verse this way, women will be preserved from the power of this curse through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-restraint. So the woman who continues in faith, the woman who comes to Jesus Christ and is saved, and yes, you will feel the pain. You're not going to ever get away from the pain. I don't know if it's minimized or not. I, I don't think so because my wife felt a lot of pain and she's a very godly woman. But on the other side, during her lifetime, as she loves the Lord and focuses her love on, and attention on her husband and her children and loving them, they're not going to go down the road and split in different directions because they're going to hold on to that same faith that her, their mother has. And so her children are not going to go through that same stuff that a non-faith person would have, a woman that doesn't know Jesus Christ just not going to go through the same things. And so there's a great promise for all you ladies tonight that you keep your eyes on the Lord if you continue in faith, love, and holiness with self-control. There's a blessing for your families. There's a blessing for your children and a great promise, as I've said. So the curse is somewhat, and I, I, I almost hesitate to say that, but it's somewhat alleviated for a woman that has faith in God, a woman that trusts Jesus Christ. When you, when you give your heart to Christ, there's, a, there's, there's just kind of a, a relaxation of, of some of that. There's a blessing for the Christian women. So that's the first part. The second part of the woman's curse. The first one was her relationship to her children, the center of who she is. The second one is her relationship to her husband. Look at verse 16 with me. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, there's a contrast there. Do you see it? There's a direct contrast. Wives, you're going to always struggle embracing your husband's role as leader of the home and the family. But God put him there. That's God's design. Don't argue with your pastor. 
that it's God's design. I, I wouldn't argue with the pastor either because I'm reading the scriptures. You have to submit yourself voluntarily to your husband. That's what that means. But you're going to struggle with that. That's not going to come easy. That, that's a curse that God's placed upon you as a woman. The pain and the, the continual, this, this, the very core of your being as a mother with your children, this constant, that's the curse. And then number two, with your husband. I don't believe that God created Eve to argue with Adam. And I don't believe that Adam and Eve argued in the garden before sin. I, don't, I believe everything was good. There was no sin. There was no reason to argue. But the, as a result of the sin, and every one of you women are bearing this curse even tonight. This, this is the curse here. It's going to affect you in some way. You are going to desire to lead in your home over your husband. That's the curse. That's what it says. And every one of you understand exactly what I'm saying, don't you? You know what I'm saying. Now, we haven't got to the man yet. And, and men, I think it's so important for you to understand that if you understand this, then you'll want to be so much more sensitive to your wife. You'll want to be so much more thoughtful and prayerful for her because of the curse she bears. Every woman bears this curse. Faithful women, it can be alleviated as we trust the Lord, as you follow Jesus Christ. Very, very important that we understand that. Your constant struggle, ladies, with your husband is a reminder of how bad sin is. It's really bad, and it affects you to the very core. The, cor the curse brought so much more animosity between husband and wife. And then notice the words again of the curse, verse 16, the end of it. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Again, Adam's headship as husband was established in Genesis 2.18. God said, man, not good alone, remember? So he made a helper comparable. That's Genesis 2. And so God's intention was for the woman to come alongside and support the husband. That's God's design. Again, that's his design. That's biblical uh, teaching. Genesis 2.22, you can look at it. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman. And notice what God does. He brought her to the man. That's God's design. And the curse on Eve makes it much harder for her to submit and just kind of flow with God's design, doesn't it? I mean, when I read this and your lady say, well, it's not that bad. And then do you just kind of flow and naturally just submit yourself to your husband in everything, every detail, every... No, you don't, do you? Why? It's the curse. It's the curse that makes it much harder. Here's the bottom line. As a result of the fall, man no longer rules easily the way God intended it to be or naturally. That's how God intended it to be. Sin corrupted both the willing submission of the wife and the loving, the loving headship of the husband. Both of those have been totally obliterated. They've been corrupted. And so I don't have a natural desire just to see my wife's feelings as, oh, you know, I really care about you and I, I want to see you fully developed and, and I, I really care about how you feel right now. And I mean, I can do that for a minute or two, can't we, guys? But to do that every moment of every day, do we do that, guys? Do we really, men? We don't do that, do we? No, I, I'll admit it. I don't do that. 
I need to try to do that more, understanding who my wife is and that she has been placed under the curse. The woman's desire is to control her husband. The husband's desire is to master her if he can. And so what does that create? That just creates all kinds of friction. That's the curse. This is what Boyce said. I've got this quote from Boyce, great Bible teacher. So the rule of love founded in paradise is replaced by struggle, tyranny, and domination. Isn't that that a great way to depict a husband-wife relationship at times? I don't think we have that in our house. We don't don't throw dishes at each other. We've never gone to blows. We, We don't yell, and we don't use foul language ever. We've never. I've never heard my wife say anything foul. Never a foul word. I've never used one on my wife. If you do that, then you're wrong. You're in sin. Men, stop it. Women, stop it. It's really important for you to understand that. This struggle is because of sin. So if we'll step back and understand that the serpent was cursed by God, that the curse of the woman, and then the curse of the man. I'm going to wait till next week to do the curse of the man. I'm just going to wait. There's, I think there's some really important things I need to t- talk to the men about. And I, I think you guys are, the snake scared you, so. <laughs> these truths from Genesis 3 are so foundational. Can you see how foundational and important these are? If, if, if I can describe anything really quick in a nutshell, this is what I'd say. For you women, this curse that's affected you, this multiplication of sorrows, all based, centered around children, from birthing and conception all the way through childbearing and racing, is real. It's a real thing. But it should remind you of the curse. It's, it's the sin And so what do we do? I go to the Lord in faith. And by faith, I confess my sin to the Lord. And part of that sin is is my usurping my authority over my husband. That's sin. And, And you've got to let go of that. And men, you've got to love that precious woman that God's put in your life. You have to love her. And you have to be sensitive to her needs. It's so easy for us to, you know, okay, well, after you're done crying, you know, make dinner for me. <laughs> it's so easy to do that. I mean, I, I'm sure I'm guilty of doing the same kind of insensitive things. But we as men need to be so much more thoughtful and sensitive, understanding that this is a curse. Understanding that the conflict in the home, that's Satan trying to, don't let Satan win. Wife, don't let Satan win in this area of feelings that are out of control in your life. Don't let Satan win in your home as you do your best to submit to your husband. Do your best. I know you're not going to always be successful. If you do your best, God will honor that. If you do it for the Lord and, and do it in the right heart. And husbands, if you love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. That's, that's our example. We're supposed to love our wives and help them, and assist them, and encourage them. So the, the serpent was cursed, the woman was cursed, and the next week we're going to look at the man, his curse, and then the covering, the covering. That's an interesting one too. But again, redemption, it's all about redemption. The curse of, of man, not 
annihilation, not death of man, Adam and Eve, when they sinned and God caught them, busted them. It was the mercy of God. He wants to redeem them back to himself. He wants to bring them back into relationship and fellowship. That's the heart of God, Genesis chapter 3. But there had to be a consequence for their action. God is a just God. And so the curse, that's why. That's why men act that way. That's why women act that way. Let's try to understand that as men and women, as husband and wife. Let's try to love each other and help each other, assist each other in a way that honors God. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this topic, as heavy as it is and, and uh, difficult really to articulate for me. I pray that your word would speak clearly to these, your people, that you would answer questions that they have. But I pray that beyond all of these curses that we've looked at, the serpent, the woman, and next week, the man. I pray that we would see redemption. I pray that we would see your grace and your great love and mercy. I pray that we would understand it from the beginning that you had, because of your great, great love for us, you provided everything that we would need. That yes, Satan would bruise the heel But you, Jesus, would come and crush Satan. And I'm so grateful that we know the end of the story. Lord, help us not to to just live after the flesh or live after other people or live in ways that are dishonoring, but, but to do all we can to live a life that's pleasing to you in obedience to every word that you've given us in the scriptures. Lord, bless the ladies in this fellowship that are sorrowing right now because of their children or maybe a relationship. Bless them, Lord. Give them your wonderful, wonderful forgiveness. Wash them with your grace and mercy. Cause them, Lord, to know your great love for them. And Lord, for husbands, help us to be sensitive and loving to our wives. Father, for your honor, for your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.